Step one, wake up early, gon' rise with the sun. Step two, get some good, some food in you. Step three, think real hard about what you wanna be. Step four, fuck everybody, just do your thing. Wake up, today's gonna be a good day. 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 Wake up. Today's gonna be a good day. Wake up. Today's gonna be a good day. Wake up. Today's gonna be a good day. Hey there, welcome to today's uh, podcast. This is Tiffany Micah. Uh, today's a new day. It's always a new day, and we're going to enjoy our days. What I've got in store for you today is a really good friend of mine. We've been good friends for about twelve years now. We we met through. Um, you know, through this, this, the sharing and, and learning of nutritional products and, um, uh, you know, we just became really good friends really, really quickly. And uh, Suzanne Skillen is, is the lady that I'm going to be interviewing, a very, very close friend, love her dearly. Um, and she's going to share her story of, of being brave and not broken. And why I wanted to share this story with you is because she – she has so many jewels in that conversation of, of what you're really going to benefit from because she's had, you know, she's been uh, privileged. She's lived a, you know, she accomplished, a, you know, a big dream when, at the age of 10 going to a, a famous ballet school in London and pursuing her dream of being a ballerina, which is what she always wanted to do. And, you know, and, and has had incredible success as a dancer and and then had a lot of challenges and so on throughout her life in the sense of had everything and being exposed to everything uh, and then losing everything and having to, to start again. And she actually did that three times. And and we talk about the, the what actually happened for her during during those times and, and the struggle. But the point of the story and what we're going to share with you is not about her being um, broken. It's about her being brave and not giving up on herself. And that's a big thing. We never want to give up on who we are. We never want to give up on ourselves and we can still get out there and accomplish whatever it is that we want to accomplish. And it doesn't matter what's been thrown at us. So um, I look forward to you listening to this interview. It's going to be really exciting. And um, you're just going to get so much out of it and you're just going to want more because at the, the end of that interview, I just wanted so much more from, from Suzanne and, and for her to share that, that story with you. So I uh, really hope you enjoy it and uh, get ready because here it comes. Hi, Suzanne. <laughs> I've been Love. <laughs> interview with you for so long as you can imagine um i've put this podcast show together a while ago and it's going through its transformation and so on um through longevity and you know and helping people accomplish their dreams and everything and uh, i thought to you the perfect person about making dreams come true is talking to the lovely suzanne skillen so suzanne welcome to uh the podcast show Thank you so much, Tiff. And um, I've been watching what you're doing and uh, it's incredible. I love your podcast. I've been telling everybody about them and it's just going to grow and grow. And I'm, I feel really honoured that you've asked me. Thank you. Thank 
Yeah, I feel honoured that you've accepted to come and talk with me. <laughs> for those that um, don't know, we uh, have been friends for a long time, for, what, 12 years, is it? Or so? 12 years, yeah. Like yeah, yeah. So we work together in a, a particular company, which we'll talk about a bit later. But um, uh, we've had a, a good bond that we've developed over the years, even though we haven't spent a lot of time together probably the last, I don't know, it's been a few because we've been going in different directions. Um, we've always had that mutual respect and love for each other. So we can just pick up the phone and chat to each other whenever we like, which I feel very honoured to have that relationship with you. Oh, thank you. Those are the best kind of friendships when you can not speak to each other for months and then when you do, you deep dive into conversation and it's as though you saw each other yesterday. I love that in a friendship. So that's what you and I have been able to do, even though we've been travelling and separated and all kinds of different things have been going on in our worlds. But once we connect, it's a deep dive conversation, which I'm looking forward to today as well. <laughs> well, that's what we'll be doing. We'll be, we'll be learning all about you. Um, so, so do you think for, for people that will be listening to us, uh, I think we would start from the beginning because there's so much that you have done in your life where you've, you know, been at, at the heights of heights of, of various businesses that you have and, and, and had and successes and so on, but you've also been at the lowest of lows as well. And I think, um, you know, like especially today in our culture around social media and so on everyone only just sees the the glory they never actually know the story and so what they see where you're at now is you're incredibly successful you and and Paul are, are incredibly successful and but they don't actually know what you've actually been through to get to where you are and uh, I just think it's really good if we can share the story of the beginning where Suzanne actually started where she was born and grew up and and her passions as a child, um, and then we can just start uh, develop it from there and really share with people what's actually happened and wh- where you've gone to through your life and where you're at, where you're at now. That would be great. So, Suzanne, where'd you grow up? <laughs> <laughs> so, I was born in London, England, and um, when I was about eighteen months, I went to um, to Yorkshire to live there my my grandfather owned a wool mill and in those days wool and cotton were really struggling because all these other synthetic fabrics were coming in like nylon and polyester and they were pushing out these pure fabrics so his wool mill was in trouble my father went up um to help my grandfather so we all moved up to Yorkshire and I was born brought up um in Bradford which is where the heart of um of the wool trade in a family that was, um, it's interesting because I look back on it now and my, my father was an Irish Catholic from Northern Ireland and my mother was a Methodist minister's daughter. So I was brought up with this clash of, um, of religion actually. And, um, so I had to go to both churches every Sunday <laughs> as I grew up. I had to go to both the Catholic church and to the Protestant, well, the Methodist church as well. So Sunday was a big day of church and kindergarten and, um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of stuff was told to me about religion. It was heavy actually for a little girl, but, um, I had a dream and 
nobody could take that dream away from me. And I probably drove my family crazy now when I look back on it, because now I have a little granddaughter, you know, who does the same thing as I used to do. I danced. I danced everywhere. Um, I put on little shows in the back garden. I drove everybody crazy because my grandfather actually wanted me to be a doctor. And um, he was paying for my education. And I was doing really well at school. I loved school when I was a little girl. I loved English. I had an amazing English teacher. And I'd read, written, um, I had read all of my grandfather's books in his library that he had. I'd read the whole of Dickens by the time I was 11. So I just love anything to do with English literature. So he he took me under his wing. He was paying for my schooling, absolutely not interested that I was going to be a dancer, and neither were my family. It was like, when is she going to get rid of this silly idea that she's going to be a ballerina? And I look back on it, and I actually don't know what – I didn't probably know what a ballerina was because we didn't have um, – we didn't have a television. Nobody gave me ballet books or anything like that, but everybody in the neighborhood would call me the little ballerina. So I thought that sounded lovely. And I danced everywhere. So that's what I was. And when I was um, about 10 years old, I was sitting at breakfast with my mother and my father and my little brother. Yes, um, he was um, four at the time. And the door, I could, um, the letterbox kind of clanked. It was one of those letterboxes when you push something in, it makes a lot of noise. And I can hear it to this day. It's, I can relive this moment. I remember what I was wearing, actually, my school uniform to go to school. And my mother went up the hall, picked up this piece of paper that had come through the letterbox, and it was the local newspaper. And a neighbor had cut out this particular page, and it said they were having auditions in London for children aged 10 and over at the Ballet Rombert and the Royal Ballet School. And my mother read this out and my father looked at her and, and, and they both had this little discussion and then said, let's take her and then she'll realize she's no good. And whenever I tell that story. Did you actually, did you actually hear that though? Was, was yeah, the I was thinking I, those words are exactly what they said. And that's why I remember it's when. I don't know if in life, I'm sure you've had those times, and I'm sure everyone listening to this, there's times in your life that everything goes very slow and very clear. And often it's when you're in danger. And I've had that happen to me three times when I've been in real danger for my life. And everything is slow and clear. And just it's it's almost like your whole life suddenly becomes technicolor. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened at that breakfast table. That's why I can remember it so clearly. But my reaction wasn't, oh, they don't think I'm any good. My reaction was, ah, this is my chance. This is my chance to show what I can do. I'm going to be a ballet dancer. I know I'm going to be a ballerina. And I just knew it in my heart. So um, we went to the auditions to show I was no good. <laughs> and we went to both the auditions and they were tough. They were really tough. And when I look back on it, Ballet school was cruel. You read now about what happened to gymnasts and what still happens to some gymnasts. And, and ballet was like that. It was a cruel world. We had to, we had to take our clothes off. I remember having to bend forward and feeling embarrassed. I'm in 10 and this doctor walking behind us what, to check even, if I even like your underwear and so on. Nothing. Everything had to come off. 
And yeah, I know it was yeah. it was scary, but I thought that's what every, well everybody else was doing it. We were ten. You do what these people in this famous school are telling you to do, and you had to touch your toes. And um, he was checking, obviously, he was checking for the height of the pelvis and all those sort of things, but there was more to it. And you, you just felt, yeah, I, I didn't feel good about that, but I still wanted to get into this school. Um, at home, things weren't great, which I haven't covered, but um, my mother suffered from bipolar. So we didn't have many ups. We had a lot of downs, but not many ups. So I saw this also as a chance to go and live in London, follow a dream, all those things. And anyway, um, long story short, because this is quite a long story, but um, I won a scholarship to both the Ballyrombe and to the Royal Ballet School. And um, my mum was amazing, actually, when I look back on it, because she hadn't been able to follow her dream. She'd wanted to be a pharmacist. And my grandfather hadn't allowed her to be. He wanted her to stay at home and just do, I've forgotten what she did even, but it, it was, I think she worked in the wool mill. She didn't do anything particularly life-changing and particularly following her dream, which was to be a pharmacist. And to the day she died, she loved go, going into pharmacies and chemists. And that was her, her love. So I think she saw that I really had this dream and because her dream she hadn't been allowed, she supported me in this. I, I must say, when I look at 10-year-old girls now, it's like, how did they do that, that I went away? So um, I went away to ballet school, and it wasn't a boarding school. And I actually had to live in approved addresses from the school. And that's a whole other podcast. I went changed seven addresses. Um some were wonderful, some were absolutely out of Dickens. So I knew all about that and um, we were starved. There were all kinds of terrible things went on, but I knew what I wanted to do. So it made me tougher. It's like, I'm not going to let this break me. And interestingly enough, coming back to religion, I was brought up in a Jewish family. One of the families was Jewish. So that opened my eyes to another religion completely. So as I was little, all these things were coming into my life. And then I got a benefactor. So benefactor is somebody who pays for your schooling. Took He took me to the opera, to the ballet. He chose a few people at, at Ballet Rombert to do this with. And and he taught me so much. He was titled, lived in a beautiful stately home. I'd never seen anything like that in my life before. You know, I didn't know about, well, I didn't know. A friend of mine, her dad had a Bentley, but that was about the closest I got to that kind of, of life. Uh, his name is Robin Howard. And he was a sir and he, he loved dance and ballet. And what's incredible about him was that his legs had been blown off in the war. He was a fighter pilot and he'd lost both his legs. And he still loved the arts and he loved ballet. Obviously, he couldn't dance, but he actually brought Martha Graham to England and she started a company. And um, yeah, this was, he gave me many opportunities and taught me so much. And I still have such a great love of the arts, which I would never have had unless I'd had someone like that to teach me and to open up my world for me and to see that dreams could come true. Mm. He always showed me that dreams could come true, even when you have hardship. Like yeah. he, He'd lost both his legs and he was a big man, 
when he had legs, but he literally would come down the stairs on just his hips. So um, I had some incredible teachers. And the other thing was I was managing my own post office account at the age of 10. So (laughs) my money, I was managing it. And um, they were all great lessons. But for me, what really, really cemented everything about dreams was I went to a friend's house when I was 15. We were rehearsing for a show. And because uh, I started work very early um, at 12, actually, I was working in the local store down the road from one of the places where I lived. And uh, I know how to do those slicing meat machines. I can do that because I learned uh, when I was living there. And so I used to work there before school and after school. And um, what was I going to tell you? I was going to tell you something really important then about work. Yes. So I was staying at this friend's house. And it was a beautiful home. And on her bedside table, her mom had left a few books to read. And one of the books is called The Magic of Believing. And in fact, it's here in my bookcase. I've still got that book. And I started to read the book and I couldn't put it down. And what amazed me about this book, because it was all about dreams coming true and manifesting things and being positive and the vibration that we have. And I was just astounded by this book and mainly I was astounded about it because I couldn't understand why somebody had to write a book about this when I knew it I thought that was really interesting somebody had written a book about dreams coming true because I just had known it within me and nobody had stolen that from me even though I'd been I'd been pressured and people didn't believe in me and um, that uh, ballet school the teachers are pretty cruel I have to tell you but they're always trying to make you tougher. That's what they, in those days, that's what it was. You know, we used to get shoes thrown at your head if you did something twice that was wrong. The high heel would come off and across the, uh, to the ballet bar and hit you in the head. And, um, if you didn't sit up straight, we had a, a big stick tied like with an, around your neck and around your waist. So you sat up straight. So my posture is really good, still is all these years later, but. They're cruel things, but when you're going through it, you realize everybody else is doing it too. So you think this is the norm, that this is what actually happens. But I always knew, and I still believe, that it's about the vibration that we carry and the belief that we have, and that dreams really do come true. They really do. And often they come true in the weirdest ways. And often it's just when you are being tested, 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 that your actual dream comes true. So, yeah, that's back to being, a, as a friend of mine calls me, a possibilitarian, <laughs> which I, I really like that title. And um, to be a possibilitarian, it's all possible. But I think some of us, as we get older, we forget that. And particularly as adults, we forget to dream. And I've got friends that now call me Pollyanna and roll their eyes. But um, and you've seen me make dreams come true. I am determined. I've, been, determined. We, I've witnessed it. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're the same, Tiff. You're a great miracle worker. Thank you. <laughs> creating magic, as you know. Yes. Um, yes. So, Suzanne, I mean, you were taught a lot of lessons in that, you know, I mean, that small period of your life, really, because we're only a child for a short period of time. Um, that's an in- incredible thing. So, um, 
But the thing from what you're saying, and, and because I'm on the same path as you in the sense of that inner being, you just knew. Like you had that inner sense that you just knew that this is what you want, this is what I'm going to do, and then you just went off and did it. No matter what was thrown at you, you were like, I'm just going to keep going. And I know how to work through that um, with with everything. So what do you think were probably the biggest lessons in that time for you um, as, as a child growing through that, going through that period, through the teenage period and all of that kind of thing as, as, as time went on? Well, I still say... Never let anybody steal your dreams and you will be tested. And the bigger your dream, the more you'll be tested. And because for some people that's, it's very frightening for some people if you step out of your box and you're doing something different. And I know for my family, um, there's an old saying, don't put your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington. And that's why my family didn't want me to be a dancer. They just saw that as as not being a serious job. So my grandfather, very conservative, very conservative background. He was an amazing, he was um, in World War One. He joined the war, um, the Navy when he was 17. And he assisted after his, their sh- ship had been torpedoed. And he, at the age of 17, he had to amputate somebody's leg. And he did it and he got a medal for it. And, you know, that was his, that was his calling, but it wasn't my calling. And I mean, I am completely the wrong person to be a doctor or to be a surgeon, completely the wrong person. I'm just, yeah, not very good with blood at all or accidents. I'm really not, not, um, my, my, my calling was to dance, always was. I feel it's written on my soul. You know, I'm a dancer and I just knew it as a little girl. And it, it, the thing that I loved about it was that when I danced, it made me happy, but it made other people happy too. And that's, I've always loved that, that I could do something where I'm helping other people to be happy, which is what I've continued doing in life. You've spent your life. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's, you're the same. You're the same. You love, you love that feeling of teaching people and encouraging people. And it's just something I've always love so it's almost like right from the beginning I knew what my life path was even though there were many many times when I I was broken there were times um I I was homesick of course I was far from my family and one of the the homes I lived in the very first one I lived in when I was 10 was they were incredibly cruel um we were dancing for hours. You can imagine, because when you go to a ballet school, you're squashing in your education around all the arts. So you're learning to dance, you're learning to act, you're learning to sing, you're doing character dancing, you're doing classical. Um, there's a lot was going on in contemporary. And so you, you start early in the morning and then you finish late at night with classes too. And we get home and there was two other little girls that were living there with me. And we were, sometimes all we'd get for dinner was, well, I can't eat this now. I can't hardly say the word, two slices of spam, spam and a loaf of bread would be put on the table. And the lodgings were, it was six guineas a week for us to stay there, each one of us. And we had a blanket each. Uh, I remember once 
was scratching and scratching my head. It's revolting to think of it, but my head was just scratching. And then I, all these things were falling on my desk, little insects. What is going on? And I went back to the lady I was living with. And I said, can you look in my head? There's something wrong. And um, she said, oh, it's just lions and tigers, darling, like this. And so we all gave head lice to each other, all the three girls, because we slept with one blanket. So we snuggled together. And we all had long hair because we're going to be ballet dancers. You know, it's a thing for ballet dancers. So when I went home, my head was, in fact, my mother didn't recognize me when I got off the train when I went back to Bradford. I walked past, well, she walked past me at the station. She didn't recognize me. I was so thin and my head was an absolute crawling mess. And I had to have all my hair cut off, which was devastating, as you can imagine. From When you're going to be a ballet dancer, you don't want short hair but again it was I remember my mum going back to London to pack up all my things and she and she said you you can't go back to that school anymore and I cried and then luckily one of the other girls lived in a town in the south of England and her parents moved to Windsor and they asked if I'd like to go and live with them so I had this option to go and live with with that family and um there's no way I wasn't going to go to ballet school. Head lice, starving, cruelty, anything. I was not, my new life was this life because my eyes had opened to this amazing world. And so it was a balance between, which most things are, you know, there's the good and the bad, but I really, I just found the good in it all the time. Um, Yeah, it was hard. I'm I'm not going to say it wasn't hard, but as an adult now, I realize why we were treated the way we were. It's a hard profession. And the world is tough and there's competition. And, you know, if you went at that ballet bar, even when I got older, somebody else would be there in your place the next day. So you just, you were made, you were hardened up, toughened up. Mm, mm, Absolutely. Um, So, then, like, how long did your ballet career last for then, Suzanne? Um, on and off for 15 years. I always had trouble with my feet. Um, they were a problem. And that's why it was really good when I could go. The Martha Graham Company started and um, that I could do contemporary dance. That was really good. And then I, I discovered, like, modern TV, things like that. Um, I auditioned for a lot of different musicals I never got into a musical funny enough but um which I would really have loved although I'd probably have had to mind the singing part but (laughs) but um you know a dancer's world that you I go to those cattle calls as they call them and um again all those things I always got the right jobs I always got the right jobs for me and then I joined a ballet company and we went to Paris that was um that was exciting And I'd never even been, when I first went to Paris, I'd never even been on a plane before. And the rest of the company, it was like they were seasoned and I was young and I didn't have the nerve to tell anybody I'd never traveled before. And it was exciting. And then I started traveling and anybody that knows me and you know that Tiff, I'm always ready. If you said tomorrow we're going somewhere, do you want to come? I'd have my bag packed and we'd be off. So um, that was it gave me, again, opened up the world for me. I'm 
met people from so many different cultures. I spent a year in Beirut, actually, 1969. And that at the time was like the Paris of the Middle East. And I loved the food. I loved everything about it. I loved the fact we could go skiing in the morning in the cedars of Lebanon, come down and be on a beach in the afternoon and then do our shows in the evening. And yeah, it was just an amazing experience dancing. And I've always been very entrepreneurial. I actually don't like working. Well, I've never really done working for other people. So I've always had an agent who would find me work. And I've never had to really, yeah, I did try once working in an office and it lasted for a day. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> it just wasn't for me because I love the fact of um, traveling, meeting new people, new cultures. And that's my dancing world took me all over, all over the world. And then I, I went to Italy and as so many people do, I fell in love with Italian. I fell in love with everything about Italy, but fell in love with Italian and, um, I stayed there for six years and I had an amazing life because it was with the, um, the Benetton brothers had just begun and I was doing advertising for them. I had a store with them. I was doing their whole range of, they only had sweaters in those days. And that was again, another whole world for me, learning a new language, a new culture. And just, I've always been, was thinking about it the other day. I've been on the periphery of enormous fame, very famous people. And I've been around them and just on the periphery, thank goodness, because I would hate to be super famous. I really wouldn't like that world at all, but I've seen that life and I've enjoyed that life as well. So I've been very lucky. So dancing did that for me. That was, it was a gift. It was my gift, but it was a real gift to me to open up a whole world and, took me out of Yorkshire <laughs> and well, it, um, took you out of, it took you out of that situation that your mum was in too wasn't it in the fact that she never was able to live out her dream and it, it enabled you to pursue everything that you'd been wanting to do as, as a young child like everything was just unfolding even though you had the hardships and the challenges that were thrown at you it, it still enabled you to be able to live this incredible life that your family were probably how'd she do that like because I know with my like with my grandmother always used to say to my mum oh Jude it's not for the likes of us Judith it's not for the likes of us so mum was always like well why isn't it for the likes of us why can't we do that because they just had that you know poverty mentality it's not for us um and then as you know, like I was the same as you. I had my dream as a tennis player. That's all I ever wanted to do growing up and that's all I ever did and that's all I ever talked about. And um, my grandparents would still say it's not for the likes of us, you know, and my dad, when I said I wanted to be a professional tennis player and pursue that, my dad was was the same and said, oh, but I want you to get a real job, you know, go and work yeah. in, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, I don't want to do that. I want to be a sports person, yeah. Well, that's why we get on so well as well, because we've both gone through through that. My father used to say, you can, you can choose. You can either be happy, healthy or wealthy. You can only have one of those things. And, um, you know, another one, you've got, um, champagne taste on a beer budget. My mum would always say, 
because I love the finer things because I saw that they were there and people had them. Why not me? Why not my family? Why couldn't we have those things? I was very lucky. I had a, a gorgeous little brother. He was actually adopted my brother. I always wanted a little brother. And because I'd grown up in a, a situation where, because my mum, now I realise, had bipolar. So she would always tell me how she tried to get rid of me when she found out she was pregnant with me and always told me I wasn't wanted. But I didn't let that overpower me because I had this inner knowing I was going to be a dancer, inner knowing that there was something better out there. And even to the day my mum died, she used to compare me to a little girl at school who is still my friend. We were we had birthdays like two days apart. She was the first person I played with at my first day at school. And um, my mum would compare her life to mine and say how wonderful her life was compared to me, what a mess I've made of my life. So, <laughs> but because that was, she almost said it was the worst thing she'd ever done in her life was let me go to ballet school. But in fact, it was the best thing she could have done for me. It was the best. I've had this incredible life and I'm so grateful now that she, she did let me go but yeah. um she resented it yeah but she may have resented it too simply because she wasn't able to live her dream and that was just yes. playing that out wasn't it exactly absolutely yeah and it was that's sad actually when I look back on it now I'm I'm older I, I feel sorry for her that she she couldn't achieve her dream mm-hmm. okay so I guess probably now moving on from when you stopped dancing, um, I mean, for one, why did you stop dancing? Obviously there's a short lifespan with, with dancing. Um, but how, how, how did you feel about that considering that was your passion? Because I understand from a, you know, when you're passionate about something as a child and you have to give up on that, you know, and move forward and, and create a new life. Um, how did you feel about that? And then what did you do? So, um, yeah, a dancer's life is, is short lived for the majority of us and dancing on your toes. It really, we're not really meant to do that. My feet weren't the perfect feet for that. So I constantly had injuries. I did have, a, and then I had a, a groin injury that just kept coming back and coming back. And as I said, you know, if you weren't in rehearsal, if you weren't in class, Somebody else would take your place. So it's very competitive. And I discovered Pilates, that pilots things, as people used to say to me. So I discovered um, this amazing teacher in London. He took, and I loved doing Pilates. I got hooked on it. I really did because it made me feel good. And it meant that I could even perform when injured because it gave me the tools to strengthen my body. And then I taught other people. I taught other dancers and other people who had injuries were asking me what I was doing and I was teaching it. And the person I learned from was um, was taught by Joseph Pilates. Joseph Pilates didn't actually have any children. So his legacy went on to his teachers rather than his family. And um, I was really, really lucky to have this incredible teacher. So I began teaching it and I loved that. And then people would ask me to teach them and it grew from that. And I was constantly teaching somewhere, always 
teaching and and yeah just looking back I had these incredible again opportunities that appeared from nowhere but I was always ready for an opportunity always ready if something happened so when I was living in Italy I started teaching I was teaching over there as well and then I came back to London and I discovered a teacher called Lottie Burke who is well she was the equivalent of Joseph Pilates but very few people know about her she was in her 80s when I met her. She'd been a dancer herself. She had a terrible accident and she'd recuperated by creating exercises that were incredible for, for the female body. And her studio, just by chance, happened to be very close to my shop. So by this time, I had two stores in London. One was a Benetton store in South Moulton Street, which is like near Bond Street. And the other, the other one I called Palms. And that was in Marleybone High Street. And the interesting thing was in Palms, I was selling sportswear that you could wear on the street. So a little ahead of my time. <laughs> I've always just been just that little bit ahead of my time. So the same with teaching Pilates. Nobody was doing it, but I was doing it. And I was going to Lottie Burke and teaching her classes and kind of making my own exercises that would work for people. Um, what I haven't covered is also mindfulness, which I've done since I was a little girl. Uh, again, it comes from that religious background of praying, but I discovered that silence was something I really loved and going into my myself for my own strength. And that's always given me strength and power. I, I didn't know it was called meditation. I didn't know it was called mindfulness. It was just my quiet place that I would you take myself really have a, a term for it then no no when you were growing up more woo-woo sort of yeah thing rather than you just don't do that sort of thing exactly or, or it's praying yeah. Yeah, yeah praying so that seemed yeah and I I combined them all I combined meditation with my classes people would say to me don't do any of that meditation business I don't like it or I'm not doing any of your prayers at the end and it's like no let's just close our eyes and just be conscious of your spine and let the top of your head feel like it's raising up to the ceiling feel your breath did all those things then people would say to me after my classes I feel so great after that I feel so good and I was thinking, well, yeah, because really you're, you've gone into your own body. That's where you have gathered that strength and power from. But nobody really wanted to believe that in those days. And yeah, that's when I started teaching. And then I met this amazing lady who had come from, we became good friends. She'd come from America and her name was Helene Johnson. We became really good friends. She's very glamorous. She was a really good friend. Of, um, again, on the periphery of things of, um, oh, what's her name? Joan Collins and Jackie Collins knew those two. I went to Disneyland with her, my, my, um, my partner at the time and her husband at the time. And they, he was with, I think it was the Eagles or some very famous rock group. So again, being on the periphery of fame was interesting going to Hollywood. I still got the pictures of that that time. But she had learned from a lady called Gilda Marks. And Gilda Marks taught Jane Fonda. And when we were, she asked me if I'd go to America and I did some classes with Gilda Marks. And that's where I had some amazing students came to my classes. 
really, really famous. Like Bette Midler went there. Goldie Horn would come to those classes. Barbara Streisand. Um, so Gilda Marx was actually married to one of the Marx brothers, or probably still is uh, married to one of the Marx brothers. And that's where Jane Fonda got her Jane Fonda aerobics exercises from. And actually, Gilda Marx sued Jane Fonda for stealing all her exercises, but lost the case because I guess exercises can be considered generic. Mm. And people have done that with Pilates too. They've they've tried to own Pilates exercises. Mm. And yeah, there was a big case. So I was really lucky again, um, you know, going to America, meeting these incredible people, working in her studio. I came back and Helena met some, um, a lady called Susie Hunt, who was James Hunt's wife at the time. And James Hunt was Formula One ri- racing driver. He, there's been a movie made about him called Rush. And he was opening a studio, obviously knowing that his career wasn't going to last forever. And I was asked to go and do some classes there. And then I got a job there, which was amazing. So I I was doing all the aerobics classes and Pilates. And what was incredible, I was, again, on the periphery of fame. Everybody that came there was famous. And it was in the King's Road. It was very glamorous. And you had to be in the know to go to that gym, people it wasn't advertised. So it was, it was an amazing, amazing experience. I met some incredible people. And that's where I came in contact with royalty and, um, was, fl- you know, I was flown to people's yachts to teach on those yachts. And it was just an incredible, incredible experience meeting these famous people who sometimes I didn't know they were famous, of course. Because you don't, you're teaching them. And the interesting thing is with exercise, it's so primal, Mm. particularly teaching Pilates is a very primal form of exercise. So there were a lot of tears and emotion would come out through exercise. And I felt very honored Mm. to, to be there and to have that opportunity. And I've always, that's why I love, I love teaching. So I continued doing that. And then a whole series of things went wrong. Well, challenges happened in my life. I had, um, I'd married and I'd married, my love life was always messy. <laughs> and um, I guess I was always looking for someone to take care of me. And it's taken me a long time to realize the only person to take care of me was me. Mm-hmm. And I would mold myself to what people were looking for in a partner or wife. And I met somebody who was very, very successful, very charming, very funny, uh, cockney, super attractive. Um, yes, to me, he was super attractive, his wife, but he was also super attractive to a lot of other women as well. And so he had a five foot two inch blonde. He wasn't satisfied with that. You know, he wanted a, a, a his, his life was hectic. <laughs> And um, I discovered he was having an affair and I was pregnant with my little girl. All this happened and I just have always said I would never, ever stay with somebody who was unfaithful to me. I, I valued myself enough to know that even though I felt that this was perfect, uh, I just couldn't stay in that relationship anymore. It was sad because there were two little girls as well who were my stepdaughters who I loved. And 
uh, yeah, I, I just had to get out of this mess I was in. And then in the middle of all this, yeah, I had, I had my little girl. We split up. Then I had Kate, her name's Katie. And, um, I had her, we tried to get back together again one afternoon. I was at the house. We lived in a beautiful area of London. We had all the trimmings from the outside. Our life looked absolutely incredible. And I just put the phone down to talking to a girl who'd been shared a room with me in the Royal Free Hospital in London, had had her baby and she was having problems. And I called her to see how she was because she'd gone into quite a deep depression. And I was chatting to her and suddenly I heard the door open downstairs the front door and I called out I'm in here and the next thing I knew there was three men in my bedroom and one with a knife one with a gun and very agitated because they hadn't expected to find anybody there and I went through this horrific two and a half hours of um, abuse fortunately my baby wasn't with me and my dog wasn't with me otherwise I dread to think what could have happened. So all this was happening whilst I was just picking up the pieces in my marriage. And my um, ex-husband just wasn't there for me after all this. I needed support. I needed help. I couldn't go back to the house um, because the memories of what had happened in that house were so terrifying for me. They stole all the christening gifts for my baby. Um, they stole all my everything, but they also stole my, my sense of confidence and bravery. Yeah. And um, I went back to live with my parents for a while whilst I was waiting for the court case. Whilst they were in the house, I kept thinking, if I survive this, if I survive this, I will get you. I will find you and you, you will pay the price for what you're doing to me. But, um, yeah, very luckily, there was an amazing detective who recognized my incredible pictures that I'd done of these men. You have to do like an identikit. And, um, yeah, I I kept looking at them, remembering every single thing about them because, I again, it was one of those moments when everything went slow. It was clear. And I was I was sure that these pictures, if I survived it, we'd get them. And he was in a, a pub in Hampstead and these three guys were there and he recognized them and he arrested them. And next thing I was in a big court case at the Old Bailey at the same time as the Yorkshire Ripper, which was a famous case, was in court one. I was in court two. But, you know, I had I had a little baby. She was only six days old when all this happened and my milk dried up and I needed support. My husband just wasn't there for me. So everything was was falling apart rapidly. Um, good story. Those three men got 10 years each, which was, yeah. I felt really good. But I didn't even want to be in England anymore after that had happened. So I'd met somebody who was a, he seemed like the absolute opposite to my husband. Very creative in advertising, had the opportunity to go on, um, he was in the expat world, had come from New York, was had been in Holland. Um, he loved to travel like I did. And he said, why don't you come to Australia with me? And I thought, this is it. This is great. 
this person will never hurt me. He's not ambitious. He's creative. We've, we've got so much in common. And that's how I came to Australia. I, came, I really ran away from England. I just couldn't, I couldn't be there anymore. I couldn't go back to the house. My marriage had failed and I just had to run away. And I left everything and started again in Australia. That's what brought me to a country that I never, ever thought I would spend so much of my life in and um, don't regret it at all. I've got, you know, I had an amazing life here, met incredible people, but that's actually where I started all over again. And at the time it was quite exciting because we flew into Sydney and met his friends in Sydney. And I thought, I can live here. This is a beautiful city. This is amazing. And then all due respect to Adelaide. <laughs> we then flew to Adelaide and stayed at the Hilton Hotel, which the Hilton Hotel was just like a one-story building. There was no international airport at the time. And I didn't know a soul. And my partner at the time was then had to go rushing off to Melbourne and I was there with my little girl in this place in Adelaide. And I remember walking down Rundle Mall, which is the big mall there, thinking, if only I could just see one face I know. Because I'd walk around London and I'd see so many people I knew. And then I had to stop myself and think, Suzanne, you're not going to see anybody here. You're on the other side of the world. There'll be nobody that you know. And it was a quite a shock. And... What was incredible was that I met this lady and she owned a radio station in Adelaide. And she asked me what I did. And I was telling her about exercise. We moved into a house. In those days, you couldn't rent furniture. So we had no furniture. We had to borrow things from the the managing director of the company gave us a table and chairs and other people who'd moved into Adelaide and had a few bits and pieces. I had I had one of those pans that you plug in and put the top on and like just cook. It was kind of a frying pan, but I've never seen one of those things before. And that's what I used all the time. But the great thing about the house was at the back of this house that we rented in North Adelaide, there was a really great room that was carpeted and it had a mirror on the wall. And I thought, I'll teach, I'll start teaching classes here. And then in my little room next to it, which would have been a, a spare bedroom, I created a creche. I found somebody who would look after other people's children and my child as well, whilst I taught. And these classes took off in that little back room. So much so that when my partner came back from Melbourne, he was, he was not feeling well. He had a headache and stayed home one day and had no idea what was going on in the house. Who are all these people? What's that loud music? Because of course I was teaching aerobics. I had no idea what I created and um, it was great. It just took off. And then some other people from radio station asked me if I'd do an ad for them. I started doing advertisements. I got a little TV show and it just snowballed. So from an experience where I knew nobody, I didn't think this would take off. It was just the most incredible experience. So that's how I began in Australia. And then we'd been there 18 months and um, my partner got a transfer to South Africa. And it was a country where there was apartheid. It was everything I didn't believe in. 
And I cannot go there. There's no way I can go to South Africa. We can't go. But of course, when you're in the advertising world, every time you get a transfer somewhere, it's a step up the ladder. If you say no, then you're going to go down the ladder. So it was important to his career. And um, I had a girlfriend who was South African. And she said, Suzanne, it's not what you read in the papers. You could actually make a difference if you go there. Just give it a chance. So I did. And that really should be my next episode to tell you about because it was how everything again fell perfectly into place from a a beginning that I thought was going to be a complete disaster. Within 24 hours, I had the best studio in Johannesburg. I made friends with somebody who then became my best friend. And I found a house the following day that was being built and we were able to choose everything for it. The, the, the paint, the everything for this beautiful little thatched house. And it was just boom, boom, boom. Suddenly I had a life in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And I was working with all these amazing boxes from Soweto came to my studio. Wow. So, yeah, unfolded in so, so perfectly. And again, just sometimes you just have to trust that everything is going to be fine. But, but I wasn't thing for you though, isn't it? That like like what we've heard already, you've reinvented yourself. You've gone somewhere else, started again, reinvented yourself, and boom, everything's just exploded, hasn't it? I mean that's yeah. that's how you operate. I know. I'm constantly reinventing myself. I never thought when I look back at the little girl who loved to dance and lived in Yorkshire that I would have this life of so many. It feels like I've been in the movies I've watched about somebody else. My life in Italy was extraordinary. My life in London was incredible. My life in Africa was extraordinary. My life here I haven't finished yet. I'm not finished. No, no, <laughs> something <I don't> bubbling. <laughs> There's lots bubbling under that surface of yours, Susanna. <laughs> it's very exciting where you're heading next. So, <laughs> sure I know. Who knows where it is? But yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely giving birth to something new. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, we're we're um, we're going to like miss quite a bit of what I'd actually like to talk about throughout all these. Um, you know, reinventions that you've been through and, um, you know, it's coming up to that thing like what we've talked about. As you can see on the board, I've written Brave Not Broken and that's that's you all over. Um, so moving forward then and we'll get to the age of, of 60 because you are 72, um, which I think you look absolutely amazing and you know that because I tell you that all the time, but you're absolutely mm-hmm. incredible. Um, but the age of 60 you lost everything and you had to start again, again, reinvent. So can you share what happened there? Because when people get to that age of of 60 and so on, I mean, I'm not there yet, I'm 52, but, well, I'm only 20 really, but um, getting to that and losing everything at 60 is is more freaky and, and scary than when you lose everything at 30, for example. It's very different, isn't it? So can you share what happened there? So when I left London, I lost everything. Yeah. I had my little girl lost everything. So I was, I was 31. 
when that happened. It happened again when I was in my 40s. I had to start all over again. And that's when I first came to Sydney with my two children and three suitcases. And somehow, yes, you're right. It's easier when you're younger. You've, I, I don't know. I always felt really brave that I could deal with things, whatever life would throw at me. 60, very different because by then I'd met my life partner. We were living in um, between Bali and Jakarta. We had a business that I really loved. We had an amazing team of people in our business. And we were settling down for semi-retirement, really. And money was flowing. We had a beautiful um, income that was coming in. We were also supporting a lot of people. The more money you earn, the more you can give away. So we were at that stage. And I've always loved that, being able to actually do lots of acts of, of kindness and do them on a big scale. It got really exciting. And, um, yeah, one day we went to our office in Jakarta and the company we were working with was American and it had gone, just gone. Nobody had told us what was happening. Nobody had told us they were pulling out of Indonesia. We had no warning whatsoever. And the worst thing was we looked in the, the doors and it was closed up. Everything had gone. Tables, chairs, whiteboards, files. It was just an, it was just empty. And all our team were crying and, ah, oh, it was so, it was so devastating to have lost, not just for ourselves, but for all these people who believed in us, who we worked with, who we'd helped and supported. Um, it makes me feel like crying now. It just was, it was heart wrenching and heartbreaking. And the other times that this had happened to me, I'd, it had happened to me, but I'd also kept control of it. I allowed, I took the position of, I can deal with this now. So going to Australia, I took that decision when my marriage failed and I had that robbery. I made the decisions, whereas this was completely out of left field. We had no idea. Talk about being hit by a, a curveball. We had no idea this was going to happen to us. And to start again, it took a lot of courage. And I'm really lucky with my partner because when he was strong, I was weak. When he felt disillusioned, I was strong. So the two of us, we were able, it was a bit of a dance between us. Um, he's very positive too. He's definitely a possibilitarian. You know him very well. And yeah, so I guess we always knew the possibilities and we believed in in ourselves and as a team that we could do this again. We could go to the top of another business again. We could be successful again, but it took a lot of a lot of courage. And I did doubt myself. I have to admit, I did doubt myself. And we came back to Australia Paul almost says came back with our tail between our legs. We we literally did. And I remember asking my daughter if she could lend me some money so we could rent somewhere, which is where I met you when yeah. we rented a place on the northern beaches. And um that was humiliating. And I felt shame. I felt so much shame because I'd brought my children up by myself. 
I'd been a really, you know, I'd managed to put them through private school. We'd always had a beautiful home. And suddenly there I am asking my adult daughter if she can lend me some money. And I had a lot of, there's a lot of shame around that time. And I guess it made me stronger as well, because there's no way we were going to let this keep happening to us and we were going to become successful whatever we chose to do. But it was then making a decision of what we would do. And Dr. Fred called us and we'd heard about this company called Isogenics from America. And somebody had talked to us about it before and said, you'd love it because it's all health and wellness products. And at the time we weren't interested at all because we were living in Bali and we were happy and we were, we were with another company and we were doing well. And so again, you know, it's timing in life, isn't it? And then this doctor friend of ours called us and told us about this company and he was having amazing results with his patients. So he thought we'd be interested. And at the time it was perfect timing for both of us because Paul had put on a huge amount of weight because of all the stress, all the cortisol in his body. He was super stressed and I wasn't sleeping. And to be honest, I hadn't really slept since that robbery. I hadn't, I was always on guard and looking out for us in case anybody that this happened to, not that I was waiting for it to happen again, but just if I heard a sound, I would wake up. So not sleeping and I said, okay, well, we'll try these products. I, I read that there was a 30 day money back guarantee. So I thought that's good because we literally didn't have money. We hadn't, we went such a, a debt, so such a huge amount of debt. And Paul luckily said, I'm going to get these products. And because I'm, I'm a good partner. <laughs> and okay. All right. We'll do it. And then I saw there was a 30 day money back guarantee. It said it on the box. I said, great. We can have all this for a month. We can see if it works, but then we can send it all back. We get our money back. And that means we've got a month's worth of free food was my thinking. Anyway, thank goodness it didn't happen like that. What actually happened was Paul started taking the products had this enormous release of weight. He started to feel so much better. I was, I had been really, really worried about his health and I started to sleep through the night. That was my miracle. I did lose five kilos somewhere. I released five kilos and I, I wasn't, I'm not a very large person anyway. So it's like, oh, that's, that's good. My clothes are slipping on nicely, but the thing was the sleep. And um, the fact that this was working on my adrenal glands, I was much calmer. Uh, I wasn't so teary all the time. And I felt that I could deal with life and what we were dealing with. So 60 suddenly didn't become an issue. It was, okay, we can do this. We've done, I've done it before. I've done it twice before we can do it a third time. And good nutrition is so important when you're going through tough times and invariably it's the things we give up we stop running or we stop going to the gym or we stop doing pilates we stop doing our mindfulness and meditation we start drinking we stop eating correctly you know all those things that are good for us we give up and we take up other habits and we saw that happen two years ago when everybody's putting on weight in australia because they were in their homes and watching netflix Netflix and getting Uber Eats uh, or whatever was happening. And, yeah, everybody was drinking. Yes. And I went the other way, interesting enough. It was like, okay, this is the time when meditation has got to be a deeper practice, triple it, whatever we're doing. Exercise more. Do, uh, we, we took up Jigong during 
during that time. But it is so interesting how it's a na- it's almost a natural reaction to give up the things that are good for you. It's almost like you feel like not deserving or you shouldn't have them. So I'm so grateful that we found this incredible company because, first of all, we were able to cope with what was happening with us. And then we literally um, put, I always say we put blinkers and binoculars on. We put blinkers on. We weren't going to be distracted. Nobody's going to take our new dream away. Even though we'd gone absolutely crazy. And I lost, I lost quite a few friends over the decision to start again because I wasn't fitting into the box people wanted me to fit into. And, and um, yeah, we just got to work. We really did. And, that dream became bigger and bigger and it's really it was be- really beautiful for us that it was two of us because as I said you know when one went up the other one sometimes might go down and we were like this it was like scales but we were there supporting each other the whole time and and making do but making sure that we were taking care of ourselves which was important and then yeah it was just an incredible time. And I look back on it now and it's like, how did that all happen to us? How, how did we become so successful again? I actually don't know. <laughs> it just, everything fell into place again. The miracle started happening. The right people kept coming into our lives. I met you during that time. Oh, you I, were like the second. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It was incredible for me to meet you two and even though isogenics brought us together, it was, it was you know, obviously it's a much deeper bond than that, as we know. So, um, but again, you know, that's what happens, isn't it? Definitely. It's the friendships and, and how the right people come into your life at the right time. And I often look back now on some of the countries. I've lived in 18 different countries. And they've, some of them have been really tough experiences. But I look back on them, I call them angels. They kind of appear in my life. They're amazing. They're there at exactly the right time. Then they disappear and I never, ever hear from them again or see them again. They've gone back to their country or I've gone back to mine. Our lives have just gone in different directions. But it's almost like they're angels that are planted there in times of need. And I'm so grateful for that. And that's actually what happened, that we met the right people. Well, unfortunately, we couldn't reconnect with Suzanne so we could finish that conversation. But this will be the first of many conversations that we will have with Suzanne and, um, uh, you know, being brave and not broken. It was an incredible story. And this is just the beginning of, of what you've heard about what's happened with her and um, the challenges that she's gone through and also the successes. We we didn't talk a lot about the successes. We've We've spoken more about what's happened, especially in the early part of her life. And we, we tried to get as much in as we could in the time frame that we had. Um, but there's going to be a lot more to come. So I look forward to sharing that with you. And, you know, she's um, looking forward to sharing so much more with you. So it's going to help you develop and grow and learn and, you know, help you accomplish what it is that you wanted to accomplish in, in your life as well. So remember, there's no barriers. doesn't matter how old you are. Remember, she's in her 70s now. She's still kicking a lot of goals. She's not letting anything hold her back. Um, she's just established a new podcast show uh, with her partner, Paul. So it's called Suzanne and Paul. So you can always uh, jump on a podcast platform, whatever podcast platform you listen to, and uh, have a 
have a listen and watch. Uh, they've just released it on Spotify, um, their new podcast show. So it'd be great to jump on there, Suzanne and Paul, and you can start listening to their stories through that and their their challenges and successes and so on and a lot of tips and strategies that's going to help you create that um, life of abundance is, is what, you know, they focus on. So in that, I uh, hope you enjoyed today's interview. Love it if you could leave a comment down below what, of what you liked, you, sorry, what you liked today and what you heard and uh, just get out there, dream big, believe in you and go after your dreams. Take care and look forward to seeing you real soon. Bye for now. Even when you feel low, you can still go Even when you feel slow, you can still go Even when there's no hope, you can still go I never answer to no man, I still go Go, go Every single day I'll be making moves Till I'm buried in my grave To the system I don't wanna be a slave I've been doing shit my way uh, Or the highway And in the driveway It's a nice range Cause I grind through the climb I invite pain And never hear me bitch Nah, I don't complain Just gotta flip the switch And you can go and obtain Anything you want Anything you need Your mind's got the key ingredient It's belief Better see with the negativity But I just slide right by Slow, you can still go. Even when there's no hope, you can still go. I never answered a no, man. I still go. Go, 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 you can flip the gray matter like some batter in your brain uh, That's why they say, fake it till you make it, eh And if you play that game, then you just might make a change Rearrange all the bad to okay Take the worst thoughts and turn them to a game Take the best thoughts and put them on display On repeat in your brain till you're feeling no more pain uh, Never slow yourself down, you can do some more Push past all the pain and you'll find a door Open it up and finally explore Everything that you thought you could never do before even when you feel low, you can still go Even when you feel slow, you can still go Even when there's no hope, you can still go I never answer to no, man, I still go Go, go